Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, the podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Benjamin P. Edwards, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, William S. Boyd School of Law. We will discuss his draft article, Supreme Risk. So welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you back and uh, always happy to interview one of the co-hosts of the program. So I thought this was a really interesting, timely, and thoughtfully framed paper about how to think about judicial risk effectively when it comes to the business implications of self-regulatory organizations. But for non-business law people in the audience, maybe you could just talk a little bit about what a self-regulatory organization or SRO is, especially in a kind of financial industry context, and what exactly it is that they do. Of course. Uh, so, so SROs, or self-regulatory organizations, as, as we call them, SROs, are critical uh, organizations. Uh, many of them are designated as uh, financial market infrastructure. Uh, but to sort of back up a little bit, um, self-regulatory organizations are not something you hear about in your ordinary civics class, uh, your ordinary constitutional law class and probably not even in many administrative law classes. Uh, They are organizations that sort of sit in this space in between business and government. Um, They um, are organizations that regulate entire industries. Uh, And so let's just lay some of those out. Uh, They oversee uh, large parts of the U.S. electrical grid, uh, the stock brokerage industry, derivatives markets, securities exchanges, municipal securities, uh, and, and a variety of other markets. They're, they're most heavily used uh, in the securities context. Uh, and these are organizations where uh, the leadership is you know, often put in place either by shareholders or by a nonprofit board. Uh, and they make rules uh, for their, their members uh, that, that have to be approved by their supervising federal agency. And they, they operate to enforce federal law. Uh, and so they, they really sort of they're they're in the twilight uh, area between business entities and government. And they they are enormously uh, powerful, uh, consequential, uh, critical. Uh, so, for example, um, lots of people know about the GameStop, uh, you know, trading halts and other things that happened. Uh, that was all done by SROs. Uh, the Depository Trust Corporation is an SRO. Uh, so in the DTCC. Uh, says uh, we need more money uh, under their rules and they interpret their rules. Um, you know, Robinhood and these other uh, brokerages have to do that uh, in order to comply with DTC rules and FINRA rules. Uh, and so they, they, they operate with the force of law uh, to oversee their markets, but they aren't always, they aren't, they aren't always bound uh, by the same kinds of restraints uh, that you see with, um, you know, ordinary federal law enforcement. So if, if the SEC is investigating, they have to protect somebody's rights against self-incrimination. But if an SRO is investigating their members, um, they have to, the members have to comply or they'll just be kicked out of the organization. And if they're not part of the organization, they're out of the industry and they're not allowed 
um, you know, to do business. So it's, uh, it's, it's a fascinating space uh, because a lot of times they, they are treated as government actors and enjoy sovereign immunity. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, when, you know, they're investigating and enforcing the law, uh, they often are not deemed uh, to be government entities or to be private actors. And so all these constitutional restrictions don't apply. Um, there's this one uh, Second Circuit decision uh, where within the same opinion, uh, within the span of about a breath, uh, the, the court describes uh, the entity as a private organization and says because it's private, uh, it doesn't have to protect constitutional rights. And then in the next sentence, it says, and by the way, you can't challenge all these other things because they're entitled to absolute immunity <laughs> because those are regulatory functions. Uh, so they're, they're just fascinating and, and absolutely critical little organizations. I say little, but many of them have budgets that run into the billions. So where do SROs come from? Have we always had SROs regulating different aspects of the financial industry, or did they come into existence at a particular period of time? Sort of what's the sort of backstory of this model of industry regulation or self-regulation, I guess? In, in some sense, uh, SROs predate uh, the U.S. Constitution. Um, the, the first... You know, the New York Stock Exchange was the, the first SRO. Uh, and you know, it, I, I call it an SRO at that, that, that it, but it, it, at the time uh, when it began to regulate its own members and formed um, you know, an organization, uh, it was not overseen by a federal agency. So it's not, it wasn't an SRO then in the sense that I use the term of the paper. But uh, you know, before the Constitution was, was enacted, uh, you know, a bunch of Wall Street traders got together underneath uh, the Buttonwood Tree uh, on Wall Street. They, they signed the Buttonwood Tree Agreement, uh, essentially where they agreed to fix prices and punish anybody who sold at cheaper prices uh, and exclude them from trading. They formed the, the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, and so for, for a long time, uh, they regulated themselves. Uh, and then you had the Great Depression and the stock market crash. Um, and so to, to deal with that, Congress passed a lot of securities regulation and the exchanges uh, wanted to fend off, uh, you know, congressional and federal regulation. So they, they struck a deal. Uh, and it was a it was really just a political compromise that uh, they would oversee uh, their exchanges under authority from, uh, you know, the SEC, which was being formed. Um, but, you know, in exchange for, for that uh, and that status, um, you know, they would be able to continue regulating uh, themselves. So, uh, so the, the, it really traces back. Uh, to the Great Depression era. It was not something that, um, you know, the, the Constitutional Convention, uh, they didn't sit down and say, we're going to delegate uh, federal power to uh, organizations to enforce federal law where their executive leadership and boards of directors are all elected by the industry that they're supposed to oversee. Um, that's, that's not um, how the original constitutional discussion went. Why do we use SROs. Like, why don't we just have agencies do the same work? I mean, I think from a lot of people's perspective, it seems like, well, gee, regulating industry, that sounds like the kind of thing an agency does. Why would we go with SROs instead? Are there advantages to using SROs as opposed to just having agencies regulate directly? Oh, oh there's, there's a very rich uh, and deep literature you know, on this particular issue, oftentimes praising SROs. Uh, but but the reality of it is, you know, most most defenses of SROs are essentially because we we don't trust Congress. Uh, so if you were going to have um, 
you know, a, a federal agency take over the duties of uh, the New York Stock Exchange, the DTC, the National Futures Association, the Financial Industry Regulatory Association, the MSRB. Um, if, if you were to take all those over, it would require Congress to either appropriate a lot more money or authorize a lot more. And another major problem uh, with it, um, depending on your perspective, might be a benefit, uh, is that if if the political process were used to fund these uh, organizations, then whenever uh, the political process broke down, um, we'd see markets break down uh, because you know when when the SEC uh, is forced to furlough a lot of its staff, uh, FINRA and many of the you know the New York Stock Exchange and many of these other quasi governmental organizations, they just keep chugging uh, right along. Uh, and the the benefit of that is that markets can continue to function. And sometimes the as we saw during the Trump administration, on on some occasions, the stock market even went up uh, during a government shutdown, um, you know, for a period. Um, so, it, it what what they what they tend to do uh, is create a lot more stability uh, for uh, the the industries that are regulated uh, through an SRO model. Uh, it it may also decrease overall enforcement costs uh, because they're able to enforce oftentimes vague rules. You know, for example, FINRA has a rule that says that its members can't engage in commercially dishonorable practices. It says they have to adhere to high standards of, uh, you know, commercial honor. Um, if, you, if you're asking yourself, what does that mean? Um, there's not really a clear answer. Uh, but the SRO, if it's, if it's enforcing the rules of a private club, uh, has the ability to enforce that rule against its members to capture a lot of behavior uh, that would be objectionable, uh, but difficult to precisely define. Uh, not something that that government would ordinarily be able to do. Well, I feel like in a lot of contexts, we think that business people like risk. I mean, you know, risk is where the money's at, right? Why is the kind of risk you're talking about here that SROs seem to be able to insulate uh, against a kind of risk that's that's bad or that business people don't like, or maybe that's bad for the financial industry or even bad for the economy writ large. What's wrong with this kind of risk? Right, right. So, so ordinarily, um, you know, risk creates opportunity. Uh, and usually you can, you can deal with risk uh, by buying uh, things that benefit uh, in the event of that risk or by diversifying uh, your assets uh, to where you hold a lot of different things. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that's really difficult to deal with is, is something called systemic risk. So, uh, you know, you can, you know, you can imagine you, you buy a, uh, you know, a property on one side of the country, a property on the other. And, you know, if, if conditions on the East Coast are bad, your West Coast property is probably going to be doing a little better. Uh, but if the entire country is destroyed in nuclear war, uh, that's a systemic risk. Uh, and none of, you can't really diversify that away. Um, so that's where the government comes in. They, they really have to be the ones to protect against that. Um, so a pandemic is a good example of, of a risk that sort of hits the whole economy uh, in a very broad way. Uh, and it's very hard to diversify against. So, so the risk I'm, I'm focused on here uh, is, is essentially the risk that these SROs are so critical and integral to market function that if their operations are interrupted or if a lot of uncertainty about their operations is ever created, it could really interfere uh, with how financial markets work. Uh, and so this could be really catastrophic. So let me, let me paint a picture for you uh, to help to help you understand this, because this is something some a lot of people seem to struggle with. Um, so imagine if there's there's some judicial ruling uh, that says that um, 
you know, rules of the uh, Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board uh, are unconstitutional or the organization itself is unconstitutional and its rules are void. Uh, if that happens, uh, what it's going to do is create a lot of uncertainty about the ways that municipalities, you know, states, uh, local governments, uh, others that, that raise money through this process, uh, you know, how, how do their bond offerings work after that? Now, this market is critical. Billions and billions of dollars uh, are raised through this market every year. Tax revenues come in uh, at one time, uh, you, know, in the, you know, in the spring and April. Uh, after, you know, if you, if you need to finance something, you need to pay paychecks and do other things, you've got to be able uh, to raise money from the capital markets. So if all the banks uh, you know, largely put offerings on hold for a couple of weeks while they try to sort this out, you're going to have uh, enormous defaults, uh, potentially, for people who are not going to be able to raise money. Uh, and that's going to just sort of you know, just run through the, the economy. We call this you know, contagion. Uh, it was the big risk around 2008 uh, when the, the credit crunch was happening. You know, essentially, uh, there was this, you know, markets were shutting down, banks weren't lending. And the reason we bailed um, you know, so many banks out uh, was so that they would continue lending and that capital would stay available. Um, so the, the big risk here is that if there's something that destabilizes markets, uh, and, and causes them to stop functioning. A lot of the real economy depends on financial markets continuing to function and provide access to capital. So sort of, sort of imagine, here's, here's a, a good way to imagine or understand systemic risk um, from another source. Imagine a hacker uh, suddenly um, shuts down uh, the Visa MasterCard network, uh, and you're not able uh, to use your credit card. Uh, and, you know, also that, you know, you're not able to get access to your bank account for two weeks. Just think about what's going to happen in the economy. How many people are not going to be able to buy food? How many people are not going to be able uh, to put gas in their cars? Uh, you know, it's, it's going to largely destabilize how things work. If, even if you have the ability to go get cash or you have some cash, places that have cash, you know, they're going to run out. People are going to hoard it. Uh, it's going to be a giant, giant mess. So some interruption in payment systems like that uh, would just would cause the same kind of problems potentially through the entire economy. So help me out here, right? I mean, I understand how Congress could potentially be a problem for the financial industry when it comes to, to systemic risk. Because, you know, Congress is bananas. It'll do just about anything. Who knows what those wacky Congress people are are going to do next. But you just told me SROs have been around since like before the constitution, right? This is a function of the new deal, right? We re relied heavily on SSROs for decades and decades and decades to run basically every sector in the financial industry. Like what could possibly happen now that would be a systemic risk from a legal perspective when we've been relying on these institutions for such a long time? Uh, just because it's been around a long time doesn't mean that the current Supreme Court uh, is going to be uh, okay with it. Uh, its composition has changed uh, in, in a pretty dramatic way um, to where you now have uh, you know, a large uh, block on the court that is, is likely to be extraordinarily hostile uh, to these types of, of self-regulatory organizations. So, so a good example of uh, you're watching out for sort of systemic risks and other things. The DTCC, 
Uh, and uh, these other organizations, they have legislative affairs groups, uh, they have regulatory affairs groups. And so they're always very engaged in the legislative and the regulatory process to try to uh, you know, mitigate risks to their operations and protect markets. Um, but that the challenge is the, the, the risk is not necessarily going to come from the legislative or the regulatory sector. It's going to come from the judicial branch. And we have to be you know, very, very aware of that risk. Uh, there's been a, a long line of uh, Supreme Court decisions focused on separation of powers issues, on appointments clause issues, uh, state action issues. And if these organizations end up before the Supreme Court, uh, there, there's a good chance uh, that the Supreme Court may invalidate them. This doesn't mean that, I, I don't want to say that the Supreme Court is going to invalidate them or it'd be right to invalidate them, it would be wrong to invalidate them. The issue is the risk. Like if the court continues uh, as its jurisprudence seems to indicate, uh, then there's a, an enormous risk to these organizations. And by extension, if these organizations go down and the markets that depend on them go down, then the economy goes down. Uh, it's a sort of thing where uh, you imagine it's a, as you're playing Jenga and it's one of these blocks near the bottom of the tower. Uh, and if you pull the, the pin out, uh, the whole thing is going to collapse. And the, the danger here is that the Supreme Court, it, it, may, it may or may not understand uh, what's likely to happen uh, in this sort of situation. Uh, it may also not be able to accurately predict uh, what will uh, happen uh, when it does something like this. It may be as overconfident that markets will continue to function. Um, in, in reality, uh, even if, market, if markets seize up, uh, because of a judicial decision in a, a two-week period or something when Congress needs to be called back in session to deal with it, the damage is simply going to be enormous. What kind of legal problems would we be talking about here then? I mean, assuming that the Supreme Court were to look at one or more of these different SRO organizations and consider a challenge to the legitimacy of their structure or the way that they operate, what, what, I mean, what would the problem be? What would the Supreme Court be looking to as something that might be unconstitutional or somehow otherwise in legally invalid and sort of where would that problem be coming from? So there, there are really four different doctrines uh, that have been surging under uh, you know, recent, you know, Trump, post-Trump era jurisprudence uh, and the, the current Supreme Court. Uh, so the first is, is non-delegation doctrine. Uh, so essentially uh, there's a line uh, of thought that the constitution places some implied limits on how much uh, authority, rulemaking authority, legislative authority that the uh, the Congress can delegate away. Uh, you know, this is something that a majority of the con- the current Supreme Court has indicated that they're they're very open to reconsidering. Uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy in constitutional law over the the scope and extent and even existence of the non-delegation doctrine, but on the on the conservative side of the aisle, uh, it's seen as a very critical tool for ensuring uh, constitutional government. And, and so if, if Congress, um, or rather the Supreme Court revisits this issue and uh, you know, places limits on the ability of Congress to delegate power to administrative agencies, or if it goes and, and looks at it places limits on the power of Congress to delegate power to private organizations, uh, either one of these uh, could deeply unsettle uh, the current 
you know, set, you know the, the current uh, SRO regime. Another major issue uh, is separation of powers risks. Uh, oftentimes, uh, we hear that the president needs to be able to ensure the faithful execution of the laws. Uh, and so this means for people who are interpreting and enforcing federal law, the president needs to be able to have some degree of influence over them. What, what doesn't happen in the SRO context uh, is, is that there's no line uh, of, of hierarchy that traces back to the president. Um, you, know, you have uh, board members who are either elected by the industry, appointed by the board, or elected by stockholders. Uh, in most instances, there's no direct relationship to presidential power. Yet these same organizations are responsible for setting enforcement priorities, enforcing federal law. Um, you know, they provide information to their regulatory agencies. Uh, and, and so there's just an enormous um, you know, degree of risk here. Uh, I don't want to go on too long on these issues, but you also have state action risks. Uh, these organizations have been treated as private actors for a long time. Um, they're very different uh, now with a series of creeping reforms uh, than they were in the 1930s. And they do a lot more. and They're much more symbiotically entwined with federal administrative agencies. And so, so because of there's a much greater risk that they'll be deemed state actors. Uh, finally, we've seen a lot uh, recently from the Supreme Court on the appointments clause. And, you know, it's, it's a good chance that, you know, given the way they've limited uh, administrative judges, both in the, uh, the trademark context and the SEC ALJ context, that they're going to be uh, very critical of SRO organizations uh, exercising power, which would seem to belong or be most pro- appropriately situated with some um, officer uh, under constitutional law. So, so it's, a, it's a real challenge, I think. Well, so these sound like a lot of theoretical or conceptual potential problems with SROs in relation to ways that sort of first principles of constitutional government are sort of being reconceptualized at at the Supreme Court. Are, Are there things happening on the ground that might also make us concerned that this is the kind of thing that people in the kind of conservative judicial movement are looking at, or that, you know, some of these kinds of questions might specifically start getting teed up in relation to courts or the Supreme Court in particular at some point in the near future. Oh, absolutely. These issues have been pitched to the Supreme Court before. Uh, they were specifically pitched to the Supreme Court uh, in the immediate aftermath of its you know, 2010 you know, Free Enterprise Fund decision. Uh, at that time, uh, the composition of the Supreme Court was very different. Uh, Free Enterprise Fund is, is one of these, these critical cases in this space. So a little bit of backstory on it. Uh, then Judge Kavanaugh wrote uh, the, uh, a very influential dissent when he was on the D.C. Circuit. Um, after he published that dissent, the Supreme Court took the case up. And they accepted a lot of his argument. Uh, they didn't take all of it, but they accepted a lot of it. Um, you know, shortly after that, there were you know, other attempts to get similar issues before the Supreme Court, uh, but they did not go very far. Now we're in a very different world. Um, Judge Kavanaugh is now Justice Kavanaugh. He's been joined, uh, or he sits beside um, uh, Justice Barrett, uh, Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, um, Justice Gorsuch, If you exclude Roberts, there are now five conservative justices on the Supreme Court uh, who have an appetite for these sorts of issues. Roberts was the one uh, who distinguished SROs in uh, Free Enterprise Fund in a a passing paragraph. Uh, It was really only about two or three sentences. Um, 
he may not be able to to hold that to you know to continue with that view on a direct challenge uh, to SROs, and uh, the large conservative bloc doesn't need him uh, necessarily, even if he splits from them. Um, so there's a, there's a good chance that uh, they, there'd be a majority for invalidating SROs. I mean, it strikes me that the administrative law community has been wrestling with these questions about delegation, about separation of powers, about state action and so on for a long time, sort of talking about like what the right answer to these questions is. What's really interesting to me about your paper is you seem less concerned about the right answer as to sort of what to do about it. Could you talk a little bit about why you think that is and, and why you think that's an important way to look at this problem? Absolutely. Uh, so when you're, when you're dealing with a systemic risk, if it comes to pass uh, or this thing arises, it's, it's enormously terrible. Think, think about how much better off we would be if uh, we had invested aggressively in public health, uh, early detection, and um, had been globally engaged on this front and able to uh, quickly suppress the, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic before it uh, metastasized across the world. It, that's the issue, essentially. Um, you know, being able to detect and deal with these problems early saves us an enormous, enormous uh, amount of hassle um, and suffering. And so what, what, we're, what we're looking at here is, you know, if, if this risk is a possibility, what should we do uh, to deal with it? Uh, so in terms of practical steps, there's really, you know, two main options for reforming SROs. Uh, one way is to bring them more fully into government. Uh, this could mean uh, you know, changing the appointment structure for their leadership such that they're all appointed by the president to, to really neutralize a lot of those issues. Uh, another way would be to, uh, to push them out. Uh, of government and you know, strip a lot of their federal law enforcement and other power and return them um, you know, more to their, their ordinary uh, historical role. Um, but, you know, so this is sort of a, a yo-yo. Like, do you want to go, uh, you know, toward governmentalization or away from governmentalization? Uh, the challenging thing is that there's probably not a whole lot of political will uh, right now to do those kinds of things. Uh, so, so given that, uh, well, one option I discuss is something I'm calling contingency statutes. So essentially, you know, planning uh, for this possibility such that you create authority for uh, administrative agencies and others to suddenly nationalize and take over uh, these entities uh, to provide steady functioning of, of markets. Uh, if we don't and we just allow them to collapse uh, in the event of you know, some entirely foreseeable judicial decision, then we we just allow markets to collapse with all the attendant chaos and harm that comes with that. And I don't think that's something we can really do. Well, so this is one thing I found really interesting about some of the suggestions that you made about how to mitigate risk in this context was it was odd to me that both having less federal engagement and also having more federal engagement would both mitigate judicial risk. And and I wonder, I mean, do you think that this is just sort of like a sort of quote unquote happy accident that the current SRO management structure managed to just fall in that sweet spot where it's maximally likely to be unconstitutional? Or was there something else going on that sort of landed them in that particular situation? And then kind of as an addendum to that, I wonder, I mean, is this the kind of fix that has to come from Congress? Or is there some way that, you know, 
business can not only self-regulate, but also self-manage the kinds of um, judicial risks that you're talking about. So the, the way they ended up there is, is interesting. So they started off very independent. And the, the challenging thing is with, with all that independence, um, you know, I've written about this before, but there, there's a tendency when the industry regulates itself that it, it doesn't tend to, you know, look under the, under the bed in the closet around the corner. Uh, and so scandals inevitably crop up. Um, so, uh, when, when you, whenever one of those things happen, uh, there's oftentimes a move to reform. Uh, and this sort of pushes the SRO model more toward uh, the government. So the government will, will take more control over the SROs, will intervene a little bit more in their governance, will require them to do more. Uh, and with, with sort of each um, you know, twist of this one-way ratchet, uh, they become a little bit closer to government. Uh, and as they do, uh, many of these the courts that are looking at them, they sort of continue to unthinkingly uh, apply old precedents, declaring them to be private organizations, when the reality of their entanglement uh, with federal administrative agencies has changed, and they're they're very different uh, from what they were when those early cases were decided. Uh, and so, so we've sort of ended up in this situation, uh, I think, both because of you know stale precedent uh, describing them as uh, private organizations, and because of a, a gradual creeping uh, governmentalization. Um, so it, we were thinking about what we could do or what private entities could do to, to mitigate these risks. Um, in some sense, there's not much you can do, uh, you know, on your own as an individual or as a single bank, uh, because it's a collective problem. Uh, so one, one option may be for SROs themselves to begin highlighting, uh, this risk and engaging in contingency planning for their operations in the event of some adverse judicial decision. Uh, another option would be for um, uh, FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, uh, to begin focusing on this issue as well. Um, and so there, it, it would certainly be easier for Congress uh, to fix this issue if there's already draft and proposed legislation uh, up and ready to go should the, the worst happen. Uh, you know, one of the, the challenges here is that there, there may be the more you prepare for this sort of risk, uh, the more willing the Supreme Court may be uh, to issue this this kind of ruling because they'll think, oh, well, they have a plan in place. Uh, but the flip side is uh, you're essentially playing chicken with the Supreme Court if you don't plan for it. Um, you know, if you say, well, markets are uh, you know, so many markets are built on this model uh, that the Supreme Court will never do it. Uh, what, you're, what you're saying then essentially is you don't think the Supreme Court has the courage uh, to do it. and you know, they, they, you know, whether they have the courage or not, uh, you know, their view may be very different, uh, from a position where they have life tenure and salary protection. Uh, and they, they may just believe that the responsibility for their decision doesn't lie with them, uh, even though they're the ones to announce it, uh, but with the other branches and, uh, private industry that built, um, essentially a house upon the sand. Uh, and so we'd, we'd be in a much better position, uh, if we're, if we're ready. Uh, for this sort of risk, should it materialize? Yeah, I think you you give the current Supreme Court a hold your beer moment at at your peril, as it were. Um, well, so Ben, in, in closing, I wonder if you could just like lay out in a nutshell, uh, and this is like a 
very small question I'm asking, but like, what do you think the financial services industry should, should do about this? Right. I mean, if you were to give like in a nutshell sort of piece of advice or sort of like the, the executive summary, as it were, of the paper for the people who are running these SROs, what would you want them to walk away with? So there's, there's, you need to take two approaches. Uh, one, one is going to be short term and the other is going to be long term. Uh, short term, uh, you need to begin to surveil ju- the judicial landscape for risks, which is to say you need to be watching dockets. You'd be watching the kind of appeals that are going up to the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, if there's some issue at a, at a circuit court, it can always be stayed by the Supreme Court to protect you. Uh, but you need to have an eye, eye on these kinds of risks and be very aware of it. To some extent, you may be able uh, to, to use your wealth and power to settle cases and avoid these issues uh, and resolve these cases before they reach the Supreme Court. But you're not always going to be able to do that. And, and when it becomes clear that you get a really favorable settlement whenever you raise this kind of constitutional challenge, then you're going to have to start thinking about, well, how are you going to deal with this in a more long-term way? And so I'd be thinking both about the short term uh, to make sure there's no sudden interruption and also the long term to be you know, really ready uh, for these kinds of things. Uh, the time when you're going to need to spring into overdrive on this is if there is ever uh, an issue uh, certified to the Supreme Court. Um, so that's, that's going to be the, the, the only really warning bell you're going to have. Um, and what, what would happen, what will happen next is really up to five, um, five people in a room. Well, that's uh, a bit terrifying. And uh, I hope the, the people running the SROs are, uh, are going to be listening in and, and thinking about these kinds of problems. So, so thanks so much, Ben, again, for coming on the program. And I encourage people to check out this paper, which, as I understand, is available for interested law reviews, should they be looking to fill their current books. Yes, yes. The, the draft is, uh, is on the market now. I don't understand their language, don't know what it's all about. For a bull buys up and a bear sells down and the broker sells you out. And here is a song, they sing the whole day long. Oh, the market's not so good today, your stocks look kind of thick. In fact, they all drop down a point each time the ticker's tick. We'll have to have more margin now, there isn't any doubt. So you better dash with a load of cash, or they'll have to sell you out. The stock exchange is a funny place, it's the strangest place in town. The seats cost half a million cash, but the brokers won't sit down. There's the brokers, the bulls, and the bears. It's queer, but it's not a joke. Boy, you get the bull till your bank rolls bare and the broker says you're broke. And here is a song I hear the whole day long. Oh, the market's not so good today. Your stocks look kind of thick. In fact, they all drop down a point each time the 
the ticker's tick. We'll have to have more margin now, there isn't any doubt. So you better dash with a load of cash, or they'll have to sell you out. The market simply goes to prove that we still have loco weed. But the bull buys what he doesn't want, and the bear sells what he needs. I bought an elevator stock and thought that I'd done well. Then the little bears all ran downstairs and rang the basement bell. And here is a song I heard the whole day long. Oh, the market's not so good today. Your stocks look kind of sick. In fact, they all drop down the point each time the ticker's tick. We'll have to have more margin now. There isn't any doubt. So you better dash with a load of cash, or they'll have to sell you out.